Welcome to Good Sex at NYU, a podcast about sex, relationships, health, and mental health in a sex-positive space. So if you're looking for sometimes serious, sometimes funny, and always sex-positive discussions, then you're in the right place. I'm Danielle Elliman, Associate Director of Sexual and Relationship Respect Services at Counseling and Wellness Services. I use she, her pronouns. And I am April Fellers, a nurse and sexual health educator at the Student Health Center. I also use she, her pronouns. We are two white, cisgender, heterosexual, female-identifying clinicians, one with a medical background and the other with mental health experience, who seek to create a space that is inclusive of all identities, backgrounds, and perspectives. Activation warning. The contents of this podcast is about sex and relationships. The topics might be uncomfortable and awkward. But we hope that listeners will sit with their discomfort and consider new ideas and not judge others for their identities, their likes, and desires. The intention is for the conversation to be positive, but at times we may talk about harms, boundaries that were violated, and trauma that has occurred, which can be difficult for some listeners. Take care of yourself. Listen to your body, and if need be, turn off the podcasts. Consider what your body and your mind needs to move through the reaction to difficult content. This could mean turning on a TV show, listening to music, calling a friend, going for a walk, or reaching out to Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999 or Safe Horizons at 1-800-621-4673. Today on the podcast, we welcome Nicole Xiao, a senior graduating in 2023 from NYU's College of Arts and Science, majoring in anthropology and minoring in chemistry and global public health. Nicole was born in Chicago and lived there until eighth grade and now calls McLean, Virginia home. Nicole is president of the Asian Fusion Dance Club on campus and the historian and an active member of Delta Epsilon Mu Alpha Tau Chapter, a pre-health professional co-ed fraternity on campus. Currently, Nicole is working as the associate director of research and team lead at the NYU Empower Lab, which focuses on conducting public health research and advocacy work on issues of sexual and gender-based violence. Nicole served as a peer health educator as a part of the NYU branch of Peer Health Exchange, facilitated workshops for New York City high schoolers on issues of sexual and mental health. Nicole, is there anything else that I've missed or anything else you want to expand on for your bio for listeners? And can you also share your pronouns? My pronouns are she, they. Um, And I think you just about covered it like anything that's relevant, at least to our conversation today. Awesome. Excellent. So can you tell us one thing that you like about being part of the NYU community? I think one of the main things that I love about the NYU community is how diverse we are. I grew up in Chicago, so a lot of the school systems that I was a part of was quite diverse. And then in high school, I moved to an area that was a little bit less diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and that almost like was like a culture shock for me. Coming to NYU really, like, I like to think of myself like as, as a city girl, I mm-hmm. think. I think it, it just was great because I can meet so many different types of people, and everybody in the NYU community is really welcoming, open-minded to things. Mm-hmm. I can have frank conversations with my peers about anything. I feel accepted about my own identities and things like that, um, that I don't think I would find in some other college campus settings. Mm-hmm. I've heard from my friends going to school in other schools that might be a little bit less diverse, a little bit less accepting. So I find that one of the strong parts of the NYU community is the fact that it's so diverse and everybody here is so open-minded. 
Yeah. I really relate to that. I'm a city girl too, even though I grew up in small rural Kansas. <laughs> um, so I really appreciate that. So we have a set of questions that we're going to ask, but we also want this to be a space where everyone feels safe to have conversations. So if any point like you want to turn a question around and ask us, that's totally okay. We also want you to bring in any, any additional questions that you might have for us to ask or sort of bring into the conversation. So the first question, we just like to start off a little bit easier. Um, what is a song that gets you in the mood or makes you feel good about yourself? To make me feel good about myself, um, I'm going to say a little bit of Beyonce for sure. Just like, honestly, recently it's been Alien Superstar by Beyonce mm. off her new album. I think it's just like, you know, I just love her music and just, I feel like she's done that for a lot of women. Like uh, she makes them feel like confident and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yes. I feel that way too about Beyonce's music. <laughs> yeah, same. Um so who was your first crush? Could be that they were literary, you know, maybe they were a musician or maybe even a real person, whatever you feel comfortable. You don't necessarily have to name names, but uh, if you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, I think my first TV crush, and I didn't realize it until later on, probably was Keira Knightley, like in the Pride and Prejudice mm -hmm. movies and also in like Pirates of the Caribbean. I love her. I still really love her. Pride and Prejudice is still my really like good comfort movie. So definitely going back and like I would I, like I rewatch that movie. Yeah, a lot. I rewatched the Colin Firth version. Firth, so it's yeah. a bit controversial. Like mm -hmm. that one, I can watch like once a year, twice a year. So mm -hmm. I hear you on this story. I think I, you know, like the different version though. <laughs> um, have you had your first kiss? And again, no need to name names, but what was that like, or who was that with? Yeah, I had my first kiss, I think, honestly, now I'm thinking back, like sophomore year of high school. And I think it was, it was with like the first boyfriend I've ever had at the time. I really wouldn't consider him like a boyfriend just because of the fact that like we were so young and like, it, I wasn't really like understanding of certain things yet. Um, but yeah, honestly, a little bit of an awkward experience because we both didn't know what we were doing, but, um, it's still like a nice memory to think back on. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And how did you learn about personal boundaries? And I know that the topic here is usually around sex, but it could be that we ta we're talking about time boundaries. It could be material boundaries, maybe even like other boundaries. How did you learn about them growing up? Honestly, that conversation about boundaries really like my friendships in high school with like solid group of, group of friends that I grew up with. That's how we kind of like learned about it. We kind of just talked about it amongst ourselves. You know, like I grew up, I'm, I'm Chinese American. So in my family and just like the way my, like my cultural background is sometimes conversations around boundaries, particularly in terms of sex. I never really had them with my parents growing up. It's just a kind of a taboo topic. So, um, mostly I'd say like I had a really great great group of friends and we were all very like from diverse backgrounds and um when we would get anxious and stressed out about um you know somebody crossing boundaries whether that be like you know personal or like time boundaries and stuff like that um it was always really good i could always go to them and we would have conversations about you know um you know what to do next and they would kind of point out for me like i think this person crossed your boundaries mm -hmm. and slowly by slowly having those conversations with those friends i kind of figured out like what like line I need to set with people, um, mm -hmm. whether that be like physical boundaries or just emotional boundaries. Yeah, that sounds great. great. I'm glad you had those friends. Mm -hmm. um, and speaking of how you learned things, I'm curious, like what was the 
dominant message around sex and relationships growing up in your household? Whether, I mean, you said um, some of these topics were a bit taboo, um, but what would you say uh, was the overall sentiment? Like, was it closed? Was it repressive, shameful or open? Uh, just not, not talked about. I'd say, honestly, my mom in particular was always very, like, careful, like, to tell me about, you know, she would warn me about, like, the dangers of, like, maybe um, dressing, quote unquote, too promiscuously. Mm-hmm. And she would start to have those conversations while I was older about, you know, things that might happen to me on co- in, co- in the college settings, like when guys approach me and things like that. But really, we, ha- we don't really have, it's been better in recent years now that I'm older, but growing up, we didn't have any conversation about sex ed to the point where, like, I didn't even learn about, like, this is not sex, but like my own period and things like that mm-hmm. and reproductive health uh, from her. It just wasn't a conversation that she had with me. And then this is not like blaming her or fault on her. It's just yeah. the way she grew up in her own culture as well. I learned like a lot of that sex and reproductive health from my schools, honestly. Mm-hmm. So like my fifth grade um, sexual health class and things like that. And um, I, like as informational as that was, I don't think our current school systems, sex ed classes are very educational or not. Also, like I'm bisexual myself. So like I feel like the um, the information I was told was very much about like heterosexual relationships mm-hmm. and heterosexual sex and not enough about, um, you know, LGBTQ experiences and sex. So overall, I would say in my household, a lot more like we just didn't talk about it. It was taboo, still very restrictive at times. It's better now that I'm older, but still when I was younger, a little Mm -hmm. bit more on the side of like, let's not be like promiscuous almost, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And like, let's not like wear things that are too revealing and generally like a little bit more like closed off and like that. But, you know, now that I'm older and I can, you know, make decisions for myself and have those conversations, I've learned a lot more uh, on my own and then through my peers as well. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, you mentioned fifth grade getting sex ed. Did you have any other sex ed later in high school? And I'd be curious if there, you saw any difference between what you learned in Chicago versus in Virginia. Yeah, I think when I was in Chicago, honestly, this is a vague memory now, but I felt like my fifth grade sex class was quite good, actually. It covered a lot of topics about like things that you needed to teach young girls about their reproductive health and then also starting to negotiate things with sex and consent. I remember them talking about consent. And then also like they taught us like condom use, like things that are a lot more common to like sex ed classes. I think moving to Virginia, I can't remember if I had any more sex ed like education like later on in high school. I think that would be more like driver's ed and stuff like that. I think we may have had like one or two classes. But even then, if I wanted to learn more about the topic, it was just a lot of me going on the internet myself Mm -hmm. or seeking out opportunities like in college, the Pure Health Exchange and things like that to learn about it more. I'd say a lot of like my sex ed, quote unquote, education would came from just me Googling and talking to my friends um, who knew a little bit more about about these topics than me um, and not particularly like classes, I'd mm-hmm. say. I feel like a lot of people can relate to that. I feel like I grew up in a time kind of pre-Google, so we didn't have the access. I think sometimes Google can, you know, not be as helpful. Lots of misinformation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But so I'm wondering what kind of like lessons or what kind of ways in which you learned how to communicate? Because you talked about communicating a lot, like with your friends, like in high school, you had a good group, which is really important. Um, How did you learn how to have like good communication skills? 
Honestly, a, a trial and error, I'd say. Mm-hmm. I realized very quickly that like if you're not communicating your needs, the other person's not going to know what you need. And like you said with my friends in high school, like really like foundational people for me and I think that's where I learned a lot of my communication skills. And then also I'd say putting myself in more like public speaking settings also really helped taking on more responsibility as in like in the lab that I'm part of and like different clubs on campus, you kind of sort of grow those communication skills and conversational skills. If you're working with a team of people, you got to learn how to communicate there. So I think that's kind of where, and I still get a lot of social anxiety sometimes, and I will stumble over my words and things like that. But I think that's where I kind of like my communication skills grew. Yeah. Yeah. I think I can relate to that. Like I do a lot of workshops, do a lot of presentations. I still stumble over my words, mm-hmm. but I think the fact that you're willing to have these conversations and also that we're all still learning when it comes to communicating, it's like trial and error throughout our life course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What types of relationship models were you exposed to growing up like monogamy, non-monogamy, polyamory? And did that influence your feelings about these models? Yeah, I'd say I kind of talked about this earlier, but like mainly like heterosexual monogamous relationships where like dominant, like that's what you see portrayed in television. You know, that's clearly what like my parents were talking to me about um, when they talked about relationships. That's kind of the vision I had for like the type of relationship that I would have for myself until about high school. Once again, going back to that really good friend group of mine, a lot of my friends now are queer as well. So learning more about myself and um, the different type of relationships out there really came from once again, like the, the Googling and then like being a part of like clubs and friend groups and then learning more about queer health and LGBT. LGBTQ health and the fact that there are different types of relationship structures out there. I learned a lot going into like these three, three, four years now that I'm in college, but also through like TV shows and stuff like that Mm -hmm. as well. Now that there is like some TV shows with a little bit more representation out there, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really important to have some representation. Um, Are there any relationship or sexual myths or even judgments that you've held on or had in the past that it's taken you some time to sort of move through um, that you'd like to share um, that maybe it's taken some time to get some insight into? Yeah, I think relationship myths, I'd say, is just like me being bisexual myself. There are a lot of stigmas that come along with that. Mm -hmm. I think early on, I heard a lot of like, you know, like being bisexual, you're like greedy Mm -hmm. or like there are words thrown around like slut and things like that Mm -hmm. that are really charged. And I think that there was a long period of time when I was still like coming to terms with my own identity and myself that like I really like struggled with these type of like stigmas. And then also, you know, there seems to be like a thing with bisexuality as well, that if you're not, if you're in a heterosexual relationship with a man, mm-hmm. people tend to cancel out the fact that you're like, you're less queer because of that. Mm-hmm. So I've always struggled with, you know, like almost like how queer I am or like whether or not I fit in that community or, you know, not being seen portraying as those stigmas as well. Mm -hmm. So for a long time, I I struggle with that. I still struggle with that, like moving forward in my personal relationships. But I'd say I've gotten to a point where like I kind of am like, and to be cliche, but like love who you love, you know, Mm -hmm. and just like not worry about like what perceptions people assign to whatever relationship you're having. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. And just in general, that, you love who you love, but also you need to love you. Mm. Right. And so I can, I, you didn't say that, but I sort of see that in like what you're saying is like, first, you know, you got to love you. And like the more you're coming to acceptance of this is who I am, I'm going to just love that. 
and then I can love whoever I want and I belong because you have sounds like good community, good friends. And so they're not judging you. They don't care. Like so long as you're happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that also speaks to not making assumptions, right? If somebody were to see you in a relationship with a male presenting person, you know, there could be a lot of assumptions of whether they must both just be heterosexual. And that's a lot of assumptions. You know, people, we like to categorize people just by looking and, and that's, you know, we've grown a lot as a culture, hopefully learning that, you know, you just can't assume people's pronouns, people's names, those kinds of things. And so, yeah, I, I hope that that's part of this learning too, that, you know, hopefully people won't just look at a couple and assume they are opposite appearing genders that they are automatically heterosexual. So, yeah. That's um, also the good thing about being at NYU. Cause Honestly, like, I've also been conditioned at NYU to come to a realization that, like, everybody I meet has, you know, different pronouns, like, different backgrounds. Like, you can't judge them based on the way they look. Everybody mm -hmm. here is so diverse and have so many different, like, experiences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to your, your younger self if you could go back when you were first becoming sexually active or having sexual urges? I'd say, like... The big thing is telling myself that it's okay and then that's like it's not shameful in certain mm -hmm. ways and then that like I can just take things slowly and then I would slowly come to the realization and get the information that I need to understand myself better. Like, you know, when I was younger and like closeted and not realized like, you know, that I was queer, um, there was a lot of like confusion that I didn't realize at the time, but now reflecting back, I could definitely see. And then also just in terms of sex and stuff like that, you know, I would urge myself to go out and try to find somebody that I could talk to about it more um, and learn more about it so that like, you know, I could start to work on like, you know, moving past like being almost like quote unquote shameful or like uh, being confused about certain things, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good advice to your younger self, but also to others. You know, to keep that in mind. Um, and so how do your identities influence your perspective and views on sex and relationships? Like by identities, you mean like sexual or racial identities? What, whatever, however you interpret that. I think once again, going back to like being bisexual myself, mm -hmm. I'd say once again, like working through those stigmas when I approach relationships, I'd say like, you know, entering into like, if I'm going to date a man or in like relations with a man, I always like feel like I need to almost sometimes I feel like I need to overcompensate to, to like make myself feel still like queer almost if that makes any sense like mm -hmm. but i know that now that that's not what i need to do but like there always is a feeling of like i feel less like accepted into this community mm -hmm. by certain people around me if i was in a almost like a straight relationship like with a male presenting person so that's probably one of the side like what if i'm entering in a relationship there those are the perceptions there I think that like if I was in a relationship with a woman or like as someone who's female presenting, there's a lot more considerations on, you know, like how to approach my family who um, don't really know that I'm like a bisexual mm -hmm. at all. Just yeah. like, those conversations, once again, going back to being taboo, don't really come up with my family. So like there's that there mm -hmm. as well. But those things are a lot more open with my friends. So that's quite good. I'm quite freewheeling yeah. in my life, like in in New York and with my friends and things like that. Also, I think a big part of how I approach relationships and concerns I might have about people's perceptions of my relationships is um, the fact that um, I'm Asian American and that sometimes if I'm entering a relationship with um, like a man or a woman who is, you know, like Caucasian or white, there are sometimes fears I have like initially in the relationship 
to think if I'm being fetishized mm-hmm. or liked mm-hmm. because I'm being fetishized. Yeah. So if I'm thinking through like approaching somebody or somebody's interest in me, like it's bad to think like that. But it's also something that does need to be thought of like when I first enter into a relationship with somebody. So that definitely informs a little bit of like uh, my experience with relationships mm-hmm. as well. And I think in general, though, like my own identities have made me be able to form stronger relationships with the people around me. Um, even though I just talked about a bunch of like fears and yeah. stigmas, mm-hmm. I think that like I come from a quite diverse background and in the relationships that I've had, it's been really good to be able to share like my own background with, with the people that I'm, you know, in a relationship yeah. with and like mesh with their own backgrounds, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important. I mean, we all, have our own identities or have our own like struggles, the fears that we have that we bring into um, any kind of relationship, whether that's an intimate partner or a friend, right? Like we're all being vulnerable. And so to be able to be aware of them and share them, you know, with those folks, I think is really powerful to be able to, you know, go in saying, here's who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, here are some of my concerns. Um, here's what's going on for me is, is really important. And a similar question that maybe you've already sort of touched on, but how does power, privilege and oppression play a role in your own like sexuality and, um, and how you engage in relationships? I think the, especially if you're talking about power and, um, privilege and oppression, I, the biggest thing is being a queer woman of color is that I don't want to get hurt in relationships, mm-hmm. especially in relationships with men. A lot of queer women of color or just like Asian American friends of mine, like we all are acutely aware of the power difference there too. Mm-hmm. And then I guess also in general, like working in my lab as well, I always am exposed to all these topics about, you know, how like sexual assault or sexual harassment has happened to like all these women. And then it's happened to a lot of women around me. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had personal experiences with things like that as well. So it's like, it seems that every woman that I, I have encountered with has some sort of story related to that. So it's, I think, very acutely aware. And like a lot of my friends and uh, my brains, like it's at the forefront when we approach relationships that how do I protect myself? How do I be safe? How do I act, exercise my own agency when negotiating these relationships so that I can be safe and I'm protected and I, I you know, I feel confident in being able to engage in these relationships, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. I think that's very real for a lot of people. Like you know so many people and sometimes we're not always talking about it, but it's like one in three people have experienced some form of, you know, sexual relationship violence, some who identify as females and the number just goes up as we, you know, sort of transition different identities. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely something to think about and or that's always on our minds. Like you don't necessarily get a break from that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I am curious a little bit more about some of the work that you're doing at your lab. If you feel comfortable sharing a little bit more about that work. Yeah. Um, honestly, like working at my lab is like one of the most fulfilling experiences I've had at NYU so far. We cover such a wide diverse of topics. We have so many different teams. We have certain teams that work on, you know, screening men for a male uh, intimate partner violence perpetration. We have teams that have worked on um, looking at the prevalence of female genital mutilation and cutting. We have teams that's been working on like adverse pregnancy outcomes for homeless women. I'm on on a team um, that has been analyzing and trying to characterize the phenomenon of sugar dating um, mm-hmm. in, in NYU like campus population. 
and we have teams like so many different teams working on so many different things. So there's always a lot to learn. But I feel like the main takeaway from working in this lab is that this topic is still so niche about sexual and gender-based violence and the barriers of access that women of color and women from marginalized groups face when trying to access the healthcare system. Like I was not exposed to the words sexual and gender-based violence, SGBV, until I really entered this lab and started working through the materials. There's a lot of conversations that aren't had that I feel like my PI, Dr. Addis, does a great job of um, leading her lab to sort of bring to the forefront. It just like isn't something that you would learn about unless you specifically sought it out. Mm -hmm. So I think the work we're doing is super important because we're bringing that into the mainstream, trying to popularize these conversations in, you know, normal sex ed classes or just like conversations and things like that with people. Yeah, that's great. Well, I can definitely relate to some of that work having worked on the ground, like in emergency rooms with people who experience these types of harms. I know April has as well. You mentioned before a little bit about how you create safety after knowing that your friends, you know, have gone through this, but also doing this work, right? Knowing all of this stuff and knowing how prevalent it is can have an impact on how we engage in the world. So I'm curious, like, how do you feel safe when you're engaging in relationships? What kind of things do you need to feel safe to be in a relationship and to, to have sex if that's something that you choose to do? Yeah, I'd say, like you said, like being in the part of this lab, I've learned so many different resources I could reach out to if, you know, I did experience some type of relationship harm or things like that. I know the different resources out there for myself as well now. But I think in approaching relationships, I always like talk it over with my good friends. Like first, like they are the best assessment for me on whether or not this person that I'm potentially getting engaging in a relationship with is right for me or not. Like I usually talk over, like people talk about red flag behavior, I guess, Mm -hmm. but I think it's an incredible incredibly important related like in conversation to have before like entering into any relationship being able to talk over like you know different like patterns like your significant other whoever you're interested in has and then your friend can kind of give you a perspective i think that's better than you looking at it yourself like they mm-hmm. they can look at it from a more of a objective perspective so that's definitely a thing i need to have i always have to have that conversation with my friends first about somebody i think also for myself i always want to make sure that i'm like well aware of the different type of like protective measures that I can take just physically when engaging in sex, like, you know, knowing, you know, the right way to use a condom, knowing that there's like dental dam access, which is something that I didn't know was a thing until like entering college, actually Mm -hmm. knowing like, you know, spermicides are out there and knowing the different options for myself for reproductive health as well. Like um, knowing, you know, birth control, whether or not that's a right decision for me as well, mm-hmm. or like, you know, different options out there to protect myself. Recently, I guess, with like the overturning of Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs decision, I feel like it was essential for me to also learn, like, you know, could I get access to an abortion if I needed that in New York, which is good because New York is quite protected. But just like knowing that information is necessary for me to feel safe and engage before engaging in any like sexual relations or just any type of relationship with somebody, I think. I think that's really great. We we talk a lot about the protective factors, right? You know, obviously the root cause of those harms, you know, obviously 
getting to the bottom of that would be much better. But I think it's great that you're saying that you you empower yourself by learning these protective factors. And the work that you're doing is also helping other people learn about these protective factors. So I think that you're right that a lot of people don't know about what is available to them if they've been sexually assaulted. They don't kind of seek that out, right? Nobody thinks that's going to happen to me or, or you know, and people don't look for that information until they need it. So I, I think that the work that you're doing is is really powerful in trying to get that message out. And it shouldn't be something that we don't know, right? You know, the, the sexual-based gender violence, it's like that should be something that everybody knows about. That should be something that everybody's talking about so that everybody can protect themselves. And I like that this is like a measure of how like protective factors help us to control some elements, right? Like we can't control the other person. We can't control, you know, oppression in a broader general sense, which is the underlying root cause, but like we can control certain things. And so having some of these protective factors helps us to feel safer and to sort of feel like we have some level of you know, control over a situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think my biggest takeaway from working in the lab is that like doing your best to feel like you have agency and to be able to exercise agency within your relationship is incredibly important to keeping yourself safe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How often would you say that you talk about sex in general and with whom do you have those conversations with? I'd say I do talk about sex a lot. And I think that's just because, um, you know, I'm engaged in a work that's related to it, but also just because, you know, I'm young and I'm in college and like a lot of my friends, like what we like to talk about is like, you know, things related to our relationship in our lives. So I think in a more casual sense, you know, my roommate and my friends, we really have conversations about like, you know, like the relationships that, that they are in and the relationships that I'm in. It's always like, you know, me and my roommates say we have this sort of morning recap sometimes mm-hmm. on things where like, you know, something went on like the night before or like if we went out or something like that, we get together and we just sort of talk it through. And like, although like, it's just like something that seems really mundane. It's something really helpful. That's like Mm -hmm. kind of where like the best conversations about sex and things like that really happen Mm -hmm. uh, between me and my friends that are quite productive, I think as well. And then also in a more like, not professional, but like professional sense, I'd say conversations about like sex and, you know, negative effects or even positive effects that might come from it. I have that with uh, members in my lab. Um, Sometimes I'll have it um, in my classes, depending on what topic we're covering in my classes. Mm-hmm. Some of my anthropology classes do intersect with things like that. Uh, I've taken like um, an anthropology of gender and sexuality class. And in that class, we talked about like very intimate details of sex and things like that. So it's really helped me feel confident to be able to talk about sex yeah. in a way that's like, it's not like something that is taboo or anything. It's very mundane and something that we should be talking about more, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So Abram and I have this term that we use quite often that we got from the book Sexual Citizen. It's called Sexual Project. So it's the reason why someone seeks a particular sexual interaction or experience. You can have more than one. You can have, you know, uh, they can vary in, you know, time and, you know, over the course of time. Um, But anyway, an example might be to experience pleasure, to not have sex at all, to maybe increase intimacy, have a baby, um, lots of different things that it could be. And it, it's a sexual project because like sometimes we think of goals and it's like a goal you attain and you sort of move forward to the next goal, but you can keep having these projects, right? It can maintain the same, um, or you can have multiple ones at the same time. So with that in mind, I'm wondering if you have had sexual projects over the course of your um, life and if you'd be willing to share like what some of those are and what some of those were. 
Yeah, I feel like everybody kind of has sexual projects, even if they're not aware of that. That's an interesting term. I'm definitely going to have to look back more into that. I, I like that term. Um, yeah, I think uh, for myself, definitely like a wide range of things from curiosity mm-hmm. to wanting intimacy with a person, wanting just to like experience this new experience I've never experienced before. Or just like, I feel like in general, sometimes it's just like, you know, trying something out that I'm, I'm not sure if I would like, but like, I might. So like all these different reasons, I don't think I've analyzed in my head before, but, um, I think sometimes I have conversations with my friends where I'm like, you know, I want to try this, but you know, I don't know if that's right for me or like, I'm curious about this yeah. or things like that. So I do realize that like there are a lot of different reasons people have sex and it's not just for intimacy or, you know, of course, like for reproduction or anything. And right. a lot, I feel like with college students, a lot of it can be like curiosity or yeah, things like adventure, that. adventure, exploration. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. Or just like, also I feel like self-empowerment. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I think sex can be such an empowering thing. And for a lot of women around me who have like had like very positive sexual experiences, it's like uh, a very like self-gratifying thing. You really mm-hmm. come into yourself and sometimes in those experiences. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's also about like getting to know your body can be one of those things that I think is really important. And when you're in college, that's something that you're getting to know all different elements of yourself, right? And I think throughout that I shouldn't just limit that to college because I think it still happens. Like you're still getting to know, you know, your yourself and your body throughout the course of your lifespan. Yeah. And then I start to realize also that like how connected like our sexual experiences and what we like sexually is related to our own personality and like understanding our ourselves. I think that like, you know, exploring kinks almost mm-hmm. is like a big thing about how to explore like different aspects of your own personality. Yeah. You know, sex can be a way to a release to sort of like, you know, solve a lot of your own like internalized issues, I think as well. Like people talk about like sex therapy and things like mm-hmm. that. So there's a lot of like different things that I like I've started to become aware of through like my lab and also just learning more about different experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important to mention because so often sometimes, and I'm not saying you or anyone in this room necessarily still get a little like shy when we talk about kinks. It's like, Ooh, kinks. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but I think it's important that we talk about that. I think it's one of the things that as you know, I've been single off and on throughout the years, it's like, okay, like I want on like date two or three, I want to know, I'm not going to judge you, but like, is that going to be something that's compatible? Like, am I willing to like, you know, are you willing to take on mine? And am I willing to take on yours? And what does that look like? Because if that's something that's you're, you're really going to need, then that's important. And I want to know, mm-hmm. you know, so I think like we also have to get around some of like the shyness of like, oh, that's that's a little like, you know, weird yeah. for me to talk about so early on. But I'm all for like, hey, let's put it on the table. Like you sound really open and like, oh, I'll try that. You know, and I think like, OK, like I might be willing to try that. I'm not sure how it'll go, um, but, you know, are, are we willing to like, you know, put our, put our kinks, put our quirks, put all of our like things on the table when we're out there seeking, you know, partners and relationships? Yeah. Yeah. So how important is sex in your life and in your relationships? And have there been times where it's been more important or less important? I'd say like in the serious relationships I've had, sex isn't paramount. I'd say like for me, I honestly sometimes like want to seek intimacy with people like in ways that are not just pertain to sex that might be like, I guess, like cuddling and things like that. But, you know, like I I honestly feel like that's not the forefront of the relationships I need to have. And then I think in general, I feel like sex is important and just, you know, like understanding yourself and things like that. But it's not 
the most important thing in my relationships, um, unless I'm going out to seek out an sexual experience, which, you know, that in that case, then that's like, of course, the forefront <laughs> of that, that encounter. But learning more about myself, I think I value like intimacy when it comes to like just like platonic intimacy as well mm -hmm. i i feel like i enjoy like you know just learning about the other person um and that doesn't have to be through sexual experience i feel like sexual experiences become more gratifying fulfilling once you've had to get to know the other person in ways that are non-sexual and more platonic and you kind of have an understanding of who that person is so i'd say like It, it varies. It varies. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very common with like my friends as well. Like they always say like it varies. Like sometimes the thing that like makes you like the most excited or crush hardest on a person isn't sex or anything related to sex, but might be like a small gesture they had did for you mm -hmm. or like, like holding somebody's hand almost. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I think that's important to name. I think a lot of times people equate sex and intimacy. And, and I think that's platonic intimacy or even intimacy in a in a romantic relationship that's not sex i think is spot on so well and i'll just add up. that i i think that you also have to expand your definition of sex because i think cuddling can be very intimate and can be very sexual and sensual right i oftentimes our culture and society really sort of focus on penetration mm, yeah when we, that doesn't necessarily always have to be on on the table right mm -hmm. it's like Hey, yeah, maybe that's something I, I enjoy, but like also let's, you know, a soft touch on the arm, like that's rubbing back and forth. You're like, that could be something very intimate. And maybe that's not like everyone's definition of sex, but it's like, it's an intimacy and it's a pleasure that we're getting from someone else. And so just to, to reframe even just like, what do you think sex is? What is your definition of sex? And, you know, how can we like expand that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think that like, Talking back to your earlier questions about stigma like around relationships, penetrative sex being like the only mm -hmm. definition of sex and like virginity and that kind of whole yeah. conversation that like if you haven't had penetrative sex before, you're still a virgin. So like that whole thing, I feel like it's taken me a while to get moved forward from and then learning about like different ways that you could have sex that counts as sex, um, mm -hmm. whether that be oral sex or like so many different things that are out there that has really helped me understand like, you know, like there are ways where like sex can be important to me and that works with me that might not be penetrative sex, especially also in like queer relationships yeah. as well. So like mm -hmm. it's very variable, I'd say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So we know sometimes people can have positive or negative experiences in the healthcare setting. And so I'm just curious um, what your experiences have been like and, and if you've ever been to a doctor or medical provider and been afraid to ask a specific question or had a tough time getting questions answered. I'd say so. And I honestly, I talk about this with my friends a lot, but growing up when I was going to my primary and she's a great doctor, but the conversation would always be like when it came to the point where we talk about like, like sexual health, um, she would ask like, are you sexually active? And, you know, I would say like, yes or no. And then she'd be like, okay, but you know, I, you know, we typically suggest, um, you know, like I, like she would say to me, like, I suggest that you wait till marriage. You wait till marriage to have mm, sex because that's wow. the way that that is like the most safe. And wow. of course, she would talk to me about like condom usage and things like that. But that's all she would cover. Back to the fact that I didn't know what a dental dam was until like college or learn about really any like, you know, LGBTQ plus health practices, sexual health practices before then. And the older I got, and especially after like learning about things in college and in my lab, I realized that like this isn't the most productive conversation you can be having with adolescents mm -hmm. at like, especially at the age with so impressionable. 
and I'm sure she's not conscious of this, maybe, but not leading the conversation and allowing space for um, your patient to talk about their own sexual health experiences and be more open to the fact that your patient might be queer and might mm-hmm. not be engaging in um, heterosexual relationships or might not want to get married ever, might not have a long-term partner. Mm-hmm. It just, like, it leaves room for stigma to sort of creep in, um, yeah. even though she's not being like uh, outwardly like judgmental or anything by assuming those things and not leaving room for like those conversations to be had. You're inadvertently saying that like, you know, you should be having like a heterosexual relationship and you should be waiting till marriage, mm-hmm. which is something that I always thought was like very, just like very, like very strange and not like something that well, it's, well. it's part of the yeah. oppression that we talk about on an institutional level, but also on an interpersonal level, right? Cause here right. you are going to a, a medical system that is in some ways judging you for, you know, or, or anyone or sort of putting their own feelings and experiences into their interaction with the patient, right? So mm-hmm. it's like not taking into consideration that not all sex is, you know, hetero, hetero, heterosexual sex, right? It's not all uh, one thing. And so it's like both and like these oppressive ideas that get sort of replicated within different systems through interpersonal relationships as well. Yeah. I feel like that experience made me less likely to disclose to my doctor about my own like sexual health and my own sexual practices. Like I'm very, I feel like I'm quite self-aware of that and my physicals, but I feel like I'm not very forthcoming with her as I probably should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also like, I, I, I kind of want to share, like, it's not my experience, but just kind of like an experience that, um, you know, like my PI, like she's an OBGYN. Right. And so she shared this experience about this young girl, like, 17 or something coming into the ER OBGYN unit. I can't remember specifically, but then she always ended up having like sprains on her ankles and stuff like that from wearing high heels a lot. And then the doctors who are working on her were like, we told you not to wear high heels. Why do you keep wearing them? You keep having these ankle problems. And then uh, like Dr. Addis was the one on like that care team to point out like, Maybe, you know, the reason she's wearing high heels is the fact that, you know, she's been like, you know, like she's being trafficked or like she might be part of like, you know, being, you know, like abused in some way if if, like facing some type of abuse. So that's something that I feel like I would never point out. Like I wouldn't have an awareness of, but having providers there who understand like trauma informed care Mm -hmm. is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And this is a big jump from like the story I just told, of course, but like being able to have providers there who our understanding of diverse backgrounds, understanding of a patient's trauma, like trauma background, is incredibly important to being able to help that patient disclose to you and then mm-hmm. having that patient feel safe when accessing healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that we try to do at the health center, like to be trauma informed. And it does sort of play into what I was mentioning before about oppression, right? Like if you can understand that, like, most people have been through some form of trauma. Let's treat everyone mm-hmm. with compassion and empathy and try to put ourselves in their shoes, right? Then maybe we can have a safer space to be able to get all of our questions answered and to not put forth any assumptions or judgments so they feel like they can come in and talk to us when something is going really wrong. Like maybe they are being trafficked. Maybe they have experienced a sexual assault, but they can feel safe enough to come in and share that because mm-hmm. if we're just jumping to conclusions and assuming and like, you know, I, I I would get this a lot in the emergency room with some of the doctors there. If we saw someone who was in an abusive relationship and the the common quote would always be like, they should just leave. It's not that easy, 
right? It's really complex why someone continues to be in a relationship that's harmful and abusive. And it was like, they're just going back. So like, we can't do anything about it. Or, you know, it's like, well, we're planting seeds and we're showing them what services are out there. Um, and we want to be a space where they can come when they're ready to leave that relationship. And so I really like, uh, hear your point and really sort of thank you for bringing that into the, into the space. Absolutely. What do you do to take care of your health, sexual health and mental health? I'd say like starting with sexual health, once again, being very aware of like what my own body needs and talking about boundaries in particular. If I don't feel comfortable like engaging in a sexual experience with somebody, voicing that right away, I feel like there's always like a fear of rejection or like that someone is going to judge you for saying no, but being able to feel like you empowered enough to say no in those experiences are super important. I feel like nine times out of 10, like if the person is a good person, like they're not going to judge you at all for like voicing and saying no, like people have said no to me and been like, I don't feel like I'm not, I don't want to go further. And I'm like, okay, totally cool. Like that's like, you know, that's definitely something that I'm accepting of. So like, um, in the same sense, like being able to say no and feeling comfortable saying no is incredibly important to how I guard my sexual health. But also just once again, going back to, you know, no, like condom use, like, uh, knowing how to use a dental dam and, you know, how to make a dental dam from a condom, how to um, understand how like plan B works, understand how about abortion access and things like that. These are all incredibly important things that I do. I try to stay up to date on so mm-hmm. that I can, you know, in any sexual encounter I have, I can best navigate those situations. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of mental health as well, once again, going back to like understanding what my own body needs, I think as college students, it could be incredibly difficult to manage your mental health at times. Yeah. So, so my biggest thing is not overworking myself and sleeping, mm-hmm. trying to sleep more, um, although I'm kind of bad at that. <laughs> um, and then also eating healthy, drinking enough mm-hmm. water, like these basic needs. Preach. That, yeah. <laughs> basic <laughs> needs that you don't really think about. But actually, like sometimes I'm like, why am I so upset? And then I take a nap and then I'm fine. Mm-hmm. So it's like these basic things are usually the things that I that I've tried to focus on in, in order to prove both my mental health experience and also in connection, my sexual health experiences. Yeah. That's great. I mean, the science behind some of those things that you said as well, like getting full eight hours and having nutrition, not everyone can do, right? Like I, I get that there are other outside factors, but can be really a good place to start. So our final question, what does good sex mean to you? Good sex for me is a mutual pleasurable experience where both parties are informed and feel empowered to negotiate both their boundaries and their wants and needs to each other. It's about feeling like you have agency when you have good sex and then also whether or not you're having fun, Mm -hmm. I'd say. That's what good sex means to me, I'd say. Yeah. I think that's a really good definition. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed these conversations and hearing other people's journey. And and I know that that there will be people that will be able to relate to everything that you shared. Are there any questions that you have for us or anything else you want to share? Um, I just want to say that I really think this is a really important podcast you guys are putting together and a really good project, like hearing from student voices in particular and giving a space to like sort of voice those voices is incredibly important. And I think 
we should be having more of that um, mm-hmm. on campus and then just in general, um, especially when it comes to like young adults like myself. Like, so thank you guys both for like setting this up and like, you know, facilitating this podcast. Yeah. Well, we're happy to do it. We love having these conversations, but we also love to, to speak with people like you who are so open, right? Like it takes a lot to mm-hmm. come on a podcast and be recorded. And I, I think that shows like where you're at in your journey. And that's a really good place. It's really impressive to see like where you're at. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's definitely a little daunting for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is there anywhere that people can find you if people want to connect after this podcast? Yeah, sure. My Instagram, I guess. My Instagram is Nicole.njs. So if you want to like DM me, I guess <laughs> you can do it there. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you. If you have questions about the podcast or anything we talked about today, please feel free to reach out to us at goodsex.podcast at nyu.edu. This email address is monitored during business hours and may take three to four days for follow-up. We are definitely open to critical and thoughtful feedback, as we didn't cover everything in this episode and might have said something that was inaccurate or that had a negative impact on someone. If you have questions about your sexual health and are an NYU student, you can connect with our Student Health Center sex expert at sexpert at nyu.edu or schedule an appointment through the Student Health Center portal. Look at our show notes for additional information and resources, including organizations, articles, books, and videos. If you have urgent mental health concerns, safety issues, or you are worried that someone might have caused harm to you or that you might have caused harm to someone, then you can contact NYU's Confidential Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999. Chat with them using their mobile app or email them at wellness.exchange at nyu.edu. For anyone... NYU or non-NYU listeners, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, or the National Mental Health Hotline. Simply dial 988 from anywhere in the U.S. Thanks for listening and tune in to our next episode where we continue to talk about good sex at NYU. Subscribe to the podcast to hear all of our quickies and interviews with NYU community members. Thanks to our content contributors for this episode, Bernadette Kerr, Alyssa LaFosse, Dr. Dominic Baini-Amisa, Zoe Raguzios, and to our health promotion team, Anna Genova, Jenny Mellum, Parade Stone, and Arna Dixit, and to Gotham Studios and Karen Ortman. 